Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Eric F., Randy D., James W., and Andy F. Jeff Klenda is our guest today. Jeff is president, CEO, and chairman of UR Energy, a U.S. domestic uranium producer. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol URG and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol U-R-E. Jeff, thank you for taking some time with us. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Jeff, so I think the market participants and media have been, we've pretty much beat this 232 petition to death. So I <laughs> want to cover some other topics kind of beyond 232 and what UR Energy has planned out. But first, tell us briefly about UR Energy and what you've put together and what this company offers. Well, I think, first of all, I think it, to give you just a, a thumbnail of who we are as a company, uh, we founded this company, myself and a couple of other uh, individuals, uh, back in uh, the second quarter of 2004. So uh, we are now 15 years old as a company. But uh, and, and quite candidly, we spent the first seven, eight years of that time as a permitting and licensing story. And unfortunately, in the United States, given the regulatory environment, that's what's required. But after much perseverance and, um, you know, um, a significant amount of capital, we were able to prevail and received our final record of decision in October of 2012, at which time we had had plenty of time to plan the build out of our processing plant. But we, the, we began the build out in October of 2012. We completed the build out in June of 2013. And we completed it on time and on budget, by the way, which is a rarity in the, um, in the uh, natural resources. And uh, we spent the next couple of months in commissioning and officially started production in August of 2013. So now here we are in July of 2019, and we are approaching our sixth year of production. And so during that time, We've approached two and three. We've um, produced two and three quarter million pounds of yellow cake um, at the present time. Of course, because we are awaiting the outcome of our Section 232 petition, we have uh, controlled our production at what we consider to be market appropriate levels. And but one of the things that we are very proud of is that we have emerged as the lowest cost producer across all publicly traded companies globally. And I do mean globally. Uh, the only couple of projects that I believe are producing at a lower cost than we are, are a couple of projects in Kazakhstan. And there's a reason for that. And that was also the reason for the Section 232 petition, because that's an uneven playing field. Those are state-owned enterprises. And we'll get into that a bit later. But the other thing that I think that differentiates us as a company is that in 2010 and 2011, we began putting in contracts, long-term contracts for offtakes for the company. We were very confident in our abilities to produce. And so consequently, we put our first contract in place in 2010. Now, everybody knows that we had a very, uh, we had a, a massive occurrence take place in, on March 11th of 2011, and that was the flooding of the uh, Fukushima Daiichi plants on the Japanese coast. 
20,000 lives were lost in Japan, none as a result of the damage to the facilities there, but it caused them to shut down not only those six reactors, but every other reactor in the country. And of course, that uh, put the um, the uranium industry in a tailspin because of excess inventories and lack of consumption. But one of the things that uh, we're, we're most proud of is that, and people don't remember this, is that actually uranium prices stayed quite high at the 55 to nearly $60 range for more than a year after Fukushima. Well, I'm just old enough to remember Three Mile Island, and as a result of that, we couldn't put contracts in place fast enough. So what we did is we hired a crackerjack market consultant by the name of Jim Cornell. Uh, Jim was instrumental in helping us put together contracts that very solid prices of in excess of $60 a pound escalating out into the future for years to come. And so we have been served very well by those contracts starting in 2013 when at the time that we started our production and right on through to the end of the decade, we have been we have benefited from long-term contracts that have uh, given us stability of cash flow. And uh, in fact, we have been the only uranium company that I know of for the last three years that has been cash flow positive. But as is the case with most of the industry, there was a period of, of large-scale finance uh, uh, contracting that took place in the early part of the decade. Those contracts are now coming off for the entire industry, ourselves included, and so we saw the end of those contracts coming. We didn't see uh, any, what we felt was going to be a change in the supply-demand fundamentals of the industry soon enough to give us the opportunity to put new contracts in place. And we felt that with the massive amount of dumping that was taking place from the Russians and the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks in particular, that we had to file Section 232 because at this point, we, had, we have come to the point now where while we consume nearly 50 million pounds a year, and let's use that as a round number, we are right now dependent on foreign sources for more than 99% of our nuclear fuel. And that is a position, particularly for a great country like the United States, that no country should find themselves in. That's just a function of very poor energy policy and even worse national security policy. So we are, we've sought to address that with our Section 232 but we continue to produce. And one of the things that I will I'll close out my preliminary, preliminary comments by saying that we have done something that only one other company has done, and that is we have maintained our operational staff. And this is critical to our ability to ramp up quickly and to be able to respond to what we believe is going to be a favorable outcome on Section 232. So those are just a few of the things that differentiate us, and we'll talk more about others as we move forward. Jeff, I want to know how you approach and view the issues behind G&A expenses and capital structure preservation and cost control. When you look at the companies in this space, there are some tightly operated ones, and we also have some loose sloppies uh, when it comes to treatment of capital. How do you see mm -hmm. this? And give us some examples of your actions here. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you, you, when you're talking about um, tight uh, control, um, I'm the tightest. Uh, there's absolutely no question about that. And one of the reasons is, is that um, I am the largest individual shareholder in my company, but I have bought and paid for every one of those shares. I've got about three and a half million dollars of my own money in this company. I have participated in most of the, of the financings we have done and uh, to preserve my uh, market share uh, in the company, but mainly because I'm a firm believer in eating my own cooking. Um, I don't expect other people to 
invest in my stock when I, if I'm not willing to do it myself. But with respect to our operations, our G&A expenses, and the preservation of capital, these are all things that are uppermost in our minds. Uh, our staff has been trained. They're all like-minded. We're all quite conservative fiscally when it comes to the company. And so we have done everything we can to uh, make sure that we, we operate on a very tight budget. We don't waste money. Uh, the other thing is, is that, and I would point this out that I am quite proud of, uh, since Fukushima occurred, this has been a particularly devastating time when virtually all of our peers have diluted themselves and their shareholders just to a, a staggering level. And we have not done so. As a matter of fact, we've only, we've only um, raised a grand total of $22 million since March 11th um, uh, and Fukushima of 2011 when Fukushima occurred. So we've only raised $22 million, and a lot of that is a function of not only uh, our stinginess or uh, uh, austerity, if you will, as a company, but in addition to that, the fact that we have had consistent cash flows because of our long-term contracts that we've had in place. That will, of course, continue to be the case regardless of the outcome on Section 232. Uh, and we have, at this point, issued as few shares of, as we possibly can. And even moving forward, uh, as, if, when it comes time, if we, when we get the green light, and we believe that we will very soon here over the next couple of days, and we plan the ramp up, uh, I am actually looking at multiple methods of financing that include, the, and I'm favoring the ones that that will allow for the least amount of dilution to my shareholders. So uh, I'm the tightest of the tight. I'm the gatekeeper, and uh, that'll continue to be the case. Well, Jeff, I appreciate you uh, going through that. Now, I want to go over to 232 and talk outcomes for a moment and give you just a couple scenarios and get your thoughts. I want to propose this first outcome. 232 is rejected, and of course, we're aware of the certain national security implications of that. But what do you do thereafter? So you've kind of alienated yourself in a situation with the utilities, potentially, uh, some would say, as a petitioner. But let's say the utilities remain silent and the market stagnates until 2022. What options are on the table to sustain through this until the cycle finally goes off? Do you seek a subsistence fuel contract to keep your costs covered? Do you issue equity? Do you sell assets? What would you do? Well, first of all, let me just say that I think that uh, that's a good starting point. I mean, let's face it, when you're talking about or kicking around potential outcomes, you have to consider the possibility that the president's decision will be to take no action. Keep in mind that there was already a Section 232 in uranium back in 1988 and was um, uh, concluded in 1989. And at the time, we it was it was put in place or that Section 232 was called for because we had gotten to the point where we were only providing 37.5% of our own fuel needs. The rest of it was coming from outside the United States. In 1989, the determination was made that no action was to be taken because most of that other material was coming in from our allies, Canada and Australia. Obviously, today that has radically changed. Uh, so it, we are in a position now where we're importing 99% of what our fuel needs are. And at this point, because of the closure of MacArthur River, Cameco's facility in, in um, Saskatchewan, that we now find ourselves in a position where we are getting more than 50% of our material from Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. In other words, Vladimir Putin and his Confederates. If there is no action taken, 
then what it does essentially is, is two things. Let me just, and I think I'd like to emphasize this. First of all, let's remember that if no action is taken, then really nothing has changed. And what I mean by that is that the industry has not changed. We are, we go back to the same industry that we were before section 232. Nothing has changed except that the utilities have been out of the market for 18 months. They would then come back in, resume their buying, and presumably the immediate impact to spot price would be that it would go higher. My own projection is that we'd probably go upwards of $40 a pound, and we have inventories. The other point is that not only would there be, will, will it mean that nothing has changed in our industry, but it'll mean that within the next year and a half, two years, by the end of 2020, we'll just be like everybody else out there. Instead of being one of only two or three companies that even has revenues in our entire industry, we will be like everybody else. Well, we'll be sitting back waiting for the supply fundamental, the supply demand fundamentals to change and become more favorable and for us to be able to resume uh, uh, production. But in today's, at today's current prices where, by the way, this is important for your listeners to know, current spot price is right at approximately 24.5 to 25 bid ask, and the long-term price is 32. That has not changed much. It's been pretty much flatlined there. For the first half of the year. But if nothing changes, then we're in a unique position. We have a solid cash position, and that is because we are delivering into contracts, and uh, we've done a very good job of that. We have inventories that are still growing, uh, that we have an operational update that's going to be coming out at the end of the day today, so your listeners will be able to pick that up. But we have growing inventories, so I can readily turn those into cash. They are effectively cash equivalents. I can turn inventory at the converter into cash in an approximately five-day period of time. But in addition to that, I've got we more than $32 million in total revenues this year. So we are in a position where we have runway because of our contracts that other players simply don't have. So in the event that there is that the decision from the president is that no action should be taken and we are entirely comfortable with being 100% dependent 50% of that from enemies of this country for our nuclear fuel when it's 20% of our base load and more than 60% of our carbon-free emissions. And if that turns out to be A-OK with this president, then that's not my decision. But I'm in a better position to weather the next couple of years than any of my peers. And yes, we would find ourselves in a position where we would be out of cash by the end of next year. So call it 18 months from now. Uh, and but I can assure you that that's a, a much greater runway than virtually anyone else in our space has. So um, that we consider that to be an unlikely outcome. I think it's a logical starting point, but we think we're better prepared to weather it than any of our peers. Absolutely, and I and I agree, and I think that uh, you should be prepared for that worst case. Because in, in all in all honesty. Uh, you could have stagnation for the next few years. The utilities don't have to come in now. They they just don't. And so that is a bit of an issue. And if you're prepared for that, that's that's fantastic. Now, I want to go the other way. 232 is good and a quota or tariff is implemented. You've got the utilities considering their options and where to buy domestic fuel. Now, they may not need anything immediately, as I said. So walk us through the next 20, the next 12 to 18 months after a positive decision. Do you contact the utilities? Do you think they will call you? Do you spend a penny on production preparedness without a supply deal? Do you wait for a contract? Do you look at spot sales if the price is okay? What are your thoughts on this no action period after a positive decision? 
Well, after a positive decision, first of all, let me go back and address a couple of the things that you said. The, the, the utilities have now been officially out of the market for 18 months, and it hasn't been just the United States utilities, by the way. That has also been a, a significant number of the European utilities. So the idea that they don't have to come into the market, I, I'm, I'm just going to say that I'll just, I'm going to disagree with you that and strongly. They, they will come back into the market. They'll resume the buying that they would have been doing 18 months ago. And they have been living off their inventories to a large extent. And so that's one of the reasons why in 2018, instead of importing 50 million pounds like they had seven out of the last eight years prior, they only imported a little over 40 million pounds. And that was because they were living off their inventory. So these guys remember that 60% of our market is, is a regulated market. It is controlled. These guys are controlled by their PUCs. And those public utilities commissions mandate the amount of inventory that they have to keep. So these guys are getting thin. They do have to come into the market. The other thing that I would like to say is that over this entire 18-month period of time since the petition was filed, we have never heard of any discussion of tariffs being the outcome. And I mean from anybody. The White House, National Security Council, Department of Commerce, Department of Defense, and we've met with all of them. Tariffs have never been on the table. I think tariffs right now is one of the dirtiest words in Washington. I think that everyone realizes that the steel and aluminum did not exactly achieve the desired effects. And uh, it, right now, we have been hearing for some time that it will be some form of quota and that there will likely be some form of exemption for our close allies, Canada and Australia, although Canada has been affected by this as well. So, okay, now moving forward, let's presume that we get a positive outcome here. Well, we feel that what we would do initially is that we would um, immediately engage with our utility customers. And keep this in mind. Um, you mentioned earlier that there, 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 there may have been some hurt feelings um, with the utilities. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, let's, let's be fair to the utilities. They're under siege. Uh, they are under siege by uh, renewables that have gotten just every break you can possibly get, starting under the Obama administration, massive tax breaks in the form of tax credits. So they have had an advantage in the marketplace. And now you have had, because of excessive drilling, massive drilling in the United States, you've got really uh, what have been extremely low uh, natural gas prices, and that's their primary um, competitor, uh, sitting right around now around $2.42 per MCF. So this is a situation where the utilities are, are, are under siege. Now, don't get me wrong. They're taking handouts from the federal government. They're pressing the states that, they're, that their nuclear reactors are functioning in, and they're taking every form of handout that they can get, but they need to save money everywhere they possibly can. So they have been adamantly opposed to even one penny more that they're paying for fuel. But the reality is, is only five, six years ago, they were paying an average of in excess of $55 a pound. Now, today, that number has come down to $36 a pound. It trails the spot price down, and it'll trail the spot price up, the average price that they pay. So we have been engaged with our utilities for a simple reason, and that is because we have contracts with them. So we have to have discussions with them on an ongoing basis uh, about uh, delivery schedules, where we make deliveries, and so on. So we have a normal course of business with these utilities, and it has been ongoing for the last 18 months. So while there has been so much speculation, and I consider it to be just irresponsible speculation, this is uh, 
this is maybe talk out of that comes out of uh, a, from a few players, uh, a few buyers for the utilities. Uh, uh, you know, as they're sitting around casually after the conference is over and get a couple of beers in them and say, we hate those petitioners. They brought this 232. Well, yes, I can understand some angst and some animosity perhaps in the early going on their part. But I can tell you this, that over the last several months, uh, we've heard virtually nothing along those lines. We have continued to have ongoing discussions and make our deliveries with our utilities. Um, business goes on. And quite candidly, if a quota is in place, it's not going to be made at the fuel buyer level. Uh, the uh, executive level, the C-suite, will be making these decisions on what needs to be done and in what timeline it needs to be done. We have maintained overall very good relationships with our utilities, and we would expect to enter into negotiations with them almost immediately. Now to address the last part of your question, and that is what would we do? We would certainly not seek to uh, move forward or advance production. We would not give our operational team the green light. We continue to be on idle and just running fluids through the plant and producing whatever we can continue to produce out of our first mine unit and out of our second mine unit that are already built out and in place. And we would not seek to um, uh, engage in any form of financing until such time as we have contracts in hand. And, and we're in a unique position. Because we have built inventories, and if, if I am correct and with a positive outcome here, and look, with resolution one way or another, prices are going higher because the utilities are indeed coming into the market. That They are coming into the market. Prices will rise. And you, I can tell you that all the, all the, the brokers are long, and uh, they're long because they're speculating that one way or another, if there is a decision to do nothing or there are quotas or whatever the outcome is, the utilities are coming into the market. The brokers are long because of it. They're, bad. They're bidding on a positive um, uh, move in spot price. Uh, but no, we would not seek to do any form of financing, even if it means selling our own inventories until such time as we have contracts in hand. If, we, if there's no decision, obviously we're selling because we're just padding the coffers, making sure that the treasury is healthy and that we have that, that runway that I was talking about. And then we can make, continue to make our deliveries through the end of the year. But we are anticipating that there will be quotas. We would be entering into negotiations with uh, our utilities as quickly as possible. And as a matter of fact, we have gone so far as to grant one of the largest utilities in the country um, first seat at the table. And that was not something that we went to them and asked for. That was something that they requested of us. In other words, if there is a, an outcome here where we need to be buying we would like to have your assurance that we get first seat at the table to negotiate contracts, and we granted it to them. Oh, that, that sounds good. And, and I don't think there's any disagreement about uh, the fact that this market will move without Section 232. I think it's a matter of the question is, when will major utilities come in on big, notable volume? And when you say they need to come into the market immediately, are you referring to spot or are you referring to these big long-term contracts, these big volumes that we experienced last cycle? Well, I think it'll be a combination of both. I think that, first of all, uh, we have seen uh, what has been historically an inordinate amount of material being transacted on the spot market rather than in the term market. Historically, you go back in time 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 90% of the transactions were done in long-term contracts. Right. It's only been over the last few years, largely because of the Kazakh dumping, 
that the utilities have been perfectly content to fly by the seat of their pants and and take material on an as-needed basis and trying to appease their PUCs at the same time as far as their inventories. But they have been able to buy cheaply from the Kazakhs. And this is really just the Russians using their ownership of Kazakh uh, producers, Kazakh production, to bypass the Russian suspension agreement. Now, that goes beyond the scope of this discussion, but that has really been the reason why the Kazakhs have become 41% of primary production globally when 20 years ago they weren't producing a million pounds a year. Now, all of a sudden, they're producing 60 million pounds a year, and the Russians and the Kazakhs are grabbing the market share throughout the world. It's not just in the United States. It's worldwide. Right. Yeah. And there was certainly uh, 2018 showed huge uh, spot volumes. Now, uh, back to yes. the utility relationships. Now, I know I know you are energy doesn't have relationships with all the utilities, but with new client utilities, do you feel like there would be uh, some hesitation or do you feel like the relationships are absolutely strong behind the scenes? Well, I, first of all, I think that um, let me just state that I have had contracts since 2010 with six, the six largest in the United States. I, I take that back. One that would fit into the top six, we did not have contracts with, but uh, five of the top six utilities in the United States, we had contracts with and still have contracts with three of them. Uh, so we have had ongoing relationships. And, and look, we are we are a known commodity to them. We are a reliable um, uh, producer. We have never missed a delivery. And so this is something that's important to the utilities. That what you need to understand is that it's a highly concentrated business. Among those top six utilities, it's probably three quarters of the um, nuclear power plants in the United States. Right. Uh, the others are very small where there are one or two reactors. Now, make no mistake, <laughs> there are no small companies that own nuclear reactors. I think that's fairly evident, but it's, uh, it's interesting because I do get the question, well, geez, are these reliable counterparties when you're entering into these conversations? And I usually make that quip that there, there are no small companies that own nuclear reactors. But the, the fact is, all of the largest we either have contracts still uh, with or we've had contracts, we've never missed a delivery. And uh, we continue to have uh, you know business relationships with them, and they're cordial. And um, while uh, I think that it's reasonable to say that those may have been strained in the early going on Section 232. The fact is, is that it's real simple. They're going to pay incrementally just a very nominal amount under a quota system that is an increase. And even then, it would be a ramped up increase in their costs, but it wouldn't put hardly a dent in their profits. Aggregately, as an industry, they showed more than $20, million or $20 billion in profits last year. So when you talk about the 200 to 300 million dollars that this would cost them spread across 98 functioning reactors, this is absolutely nothing to them, right. despite their protestations. Uh, so uh, our relationships we consider to be solid. We have made sure that we have done that uh, every step of the way. We've maintained a business relationship with them. It's been rancorous at times. They have. Uh, they have said that we've been unpatriotic because we would have the audacity to bring a 232, which would threaten their existence. And they represent 100,000 jobs and and uh, that this would result in reactor closures and it's going to be Armageddon. It's going to be apocalyptic. Well, obviously, uh, the, all of that is nonsense. Uh, they have to say that to posture and, and their, right. 
they're fighting the trade battle the same as we are. And we, of course, counter that, look, we cannot be this reliant on hostile foreign entities and that we have to maintain a certain amount of reliance as a company, self-reliance as a company right. at a minimal level to maintain our national security. Because look, let's face it, right now you see hotspots all around the globe, whether it's Syria, Yemen, South China Sea, Ukraine, pick your hotspot. We are effectively entered into a Cold War 2.0 with the Russians, and we have an ongoing down and dirty trade war with the Chinese. And now all of a sudden we're sending stealth bombers over to Iran, and we've got a carrier group in the Straits of Hormuz. So think about this for a moment. If for any reason the flow of that material were to stop coming into the United States, our United States utilities would be in crisis literally overnight. Now, they have said, well, in the event of such a crisis, we would first tune to our allies. Who? The Canadians, you mean, that just saw a 50% reduction in their production last year because you let, because they both of you let the Kazakhs put them out of business? Or the Australians, who are also have shut down production, and the only real production they have comes out of BHP, their Olympic Dam facility, where it's just byproduct production to their right. gold and copper? So... Which, which allies are you exactly going to rely on? Namibia is now controlled uh, virtually entirely by the Chinese. So you're not going to rely on our allies. Well, we, then we're going to go to the federal government, and they're going to make sure that we're okay. Well, the government stockpile, first of all, is unknown, but it is known to be not that large and diminishing. And the government has said they may need to come into the market as early as 2025 to start buying to supplement their own stockpiles. So if there is a disruption in that material that's coming over from Southeast Asia right now, who's going to make up that difference? It's not going to come from our allies. It's not going to come from the U.S. stockpiles. And by the way, the stockpiles are thought to be at least 85 to 90 percent in need of reprocessing to even be usable by the utilities as low-enriched uranium. And so as enriched uranium product to be fabricated. So who are you going to rely on? If you don't have a domestic production capability, you're sowing the seeds of your own destruction. It's really that simple. We cannot, as a nation, afford to be that short-sighted. It's, it's, this is really not a complex issue. Right. No, and it's a false notion anyway, because at the end of the day, the market is self-curring, and they will pay higher prices irrespective of this. So that's it, it's a completely uh, bullshit argument. So I want to move on uh, because yeah, for the sake of time, and I know I know you're short sure. of time, Jeff. Under legacy supply contracts, when spot uh, was more viable, how do you view buying foreign source uranium to fulfill domestic contracts? Is there is the justification just simply survival first? Well, I figure if it's good enough for Tim Gitzel and Cameco, it's certainly good enough for me. Uh, the, the reality is, is that Cameco is going to be buying upwards of 18 to 20 million pounds this year to fulfill contracts here in the United States and elsewhere where they've made commitments. We really were uh, delivering almost entirely out of our own production until 2017, at which time we were at $20 a pound. And look, you know, I'm, I, I come out of the markets. I understand market trading very well. And it didn't take a genius to say, look, if we're going to be sitting down here at $20 a pound, we might as well provide for the next few years of our needs. And so we bought two-thirds of our pounds in 2017 at an average price of $21 a pound. Well, I was delivering into $49 contracts, so I was scraping a $28 margin in a $20, $21 spot market. The following year in 2018, 
because we bought out on the forward curve, our prices went up a little bit, but we bought 100% of our pounds in the marketplace last year in 2018 at an average price of $24 a pound. Once again, delivering into $49 right. contracts, so we scraped a $25 margin. The simple fact is, is that we could no longer justify maintaining a high level of production. So for us to, and so, and consequently, that meant that our production was dropping. We were letting it drop to what we considered again to be market appropriate levels. So since that was the case, it put us in a position where we would have been foolish to continue to produce at a higher level of production, consuming our own in-ground resource when I could buy it for less in the marketplace and deliver Correct. into our contracts. And it was, by the way, our, our contracts call for U.S. legal. And so it did not have to be project-specific or, or uh, uh, company-specific company production. It only had to be U.S. legal. And, and we have consistently delivered um, Canadian or Australian production. In one case, we delivered Uzbek production. To the best of my knowledge, we have never delivered Kazakh production or Russian production. So, and we would, and we would certainly try our best not to do so. But frankly, um, if I had to, if those are the pounds that are delivered to me through the remainder of this year or into next year, well, quite candidly, not to be snide or cynical about this, but I figure that the utilities have gotten used to a steady diet of that material for over the last seven, eight years. Why should I be the one to disrupt their uh, their their eating habits? So, um, if they uh, you know they're perfectly content to consume Russian and Kazakh material, um, why should I be why should I be have com uh, any compunction about providing them with the material that they become so accustomed to? So, yes, it was not only a matter of self preservation, but it was a matter of just good sound business planning and economics. Uh, even this year, we yes. will deliver. 500,000 pounds into the marketplace uh, at an average price, once again, of about $49 a pound. Our costs have gone up. They're in excess of $26 a pound because, again, when we were buying, we were buying along the forward curve, so prices were rising. But we'll scrape those margins, consider ourselves to be very fortunate. And uh, as I said from the outset, if it's good enough for Cameco, it's good enough for me. If, if Tim right. Gitzel is smart for doing so, then I don't see why I should feel badly for doing what's smart for my company. I want to move on to talk specifically Section 232 trade protection, a vehicle that's used in the United States and readily available in the United States as opposed to other nations. Um, now, other nations, uh, speaking uh, to the Far East and, and places like uh, Kazakhstan, uh, are using other means as their protection, like state sponsorship, <laughs> currency valuations. Oh, well, it goes beyond dumping. their protection. <laughs> that's correct, yes. So do you see all of those other tools that they're using as a means really to the same end? No, it's not. It's absolutely 100% something different. It's, it's beyond apples and oranges. You're talking about predator and prey. Uh, and let me tell you, we're the prey. And this is something, this is, a, this is a strategy that was put in place, in my view, by Vladimir Putin. It has been brilliantly conceived, brilliantly executed. And it has all been done while the West has been sleeping and our utilities have been perfectly content to either be pawns in his chess game that we don't understand or they've understood it and done it anyway because they feel as that though they're so put upon that they have to save every dollar they can. But let's be, let's be candid here about what's taking place throughout the rest of the world. And well, first of all, let me say that this is not protectionism in the United States. This is not some 1930s style uh, smoot holly protectionism. The simple fact of the matter is, is that 
in places like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, you, these are state-owned enterprises. Right now, more than 60% of all primary production globally is coming out of state-owned enterprises. And what that means is that, think about this, during a time since 2011, you have an instance where Kazakh production has more than doubled since 2010. So it during that time, this has become, uh, they have doubled their production during a time where the market has been consistently deteriorating. They have done that because of state-owned sponsorship. That means they're being, they're being supplemented by the state. They benefit from virtual slave labor. They, uh, they are in situ producers, just as we are. We use an alkaline solution, which is basically a very highly oxygenated Perrier water. They use sulfuric acid, so they have no environmental standards. When they're finished, they just leave it in the ground and naturally attenuate and then move on. And then they have also devalued their currencies by 85 90%. Well, I'll tell you what. You give me those circumstances, and anybody can look like an economic marvel. And the reality is, is that if they didn't benefit from all of those market manipulation methods, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't be competitive with us. They wouldn't be right. able to compete with me on a pound-for-pound -pound basis. And the right. other thing that I think is important here is let's understand this. When Vladimir Putin came into office in 2001, the Russians controlled only a very small piece of the marketplace, as did the Chinese. And the Kazakhs were a non-issue, and they were let out of the Russian suspension agreement. Fast forward 20 years or nearly 20 years now under Vladimir Putin's rule, they control in excess of 60% of global primary production of natural uranium, uh, U-308. They control roughly 40% of US-6, and they control over 50% of enriched product. So these guys have quietly taken control of the fuel cycle, much to the detriment of the West. And when you can control a thing, you can destroy a thing. And what's happening right. here is the United States is losing its place at the table. We can no longer go into places like North Korea, uh, Iran, or even Saudi Arabia. Look at where we are right now in, with Iran. Well, this is right now the United States. Who do we have that is, that's, that's going out there selling nuclear technology to uh, emerging market countries? It's not the United States. It's not a, a coming out of bankruptcy Westinghouse. It's the Russians who are right now constructing 36 reactors in 12 countries. And the Chinese, who have stolen the technology from everybody in the West, put it together in brilliant fashion, constructed their own fourth-generation reactors that are now going to be sold throughout the world. So we've got the Russians and the Chinese that have taken control of the fuel cycle, and they've taken control of nuclear power globally. This is something that should frighten every rational American or Canadian or member of any OECD country. We have ceded this technology and control of nuclear power to our enemies. It's just that simple. Right. And the fact is, is that when you take a look at countries like North Korea, Pakistan, and others that are considered to be the loose cannons out there, and even Iran, they didn't get the technology from us. They got it from the Russians and Chinese. What do you think is going to happen to proliferation? Even now, when our State Department is going into Saudi Arabia and saying, we want to oversee what type of reactors you build. You want to build 17, 18 reactors over the next 10 years. Well, we want to oversee it. We want to oversee the build-out. We want to make sure you don't overly enrich, just like we want to oversee it in Iran. And already, the Saudi Arabians are saying to us, we don't care what you think. And if we can't come <laughs> to an agreement on enriched uranium, well, I've got Mr. Lavrov sitting in an office right down the hall. And he's not going to put any restrictions on me. 
He's going to provide me with the designs we're going to build out. They're going to oversee the build out. They're going to oversee the operation. They're going to oversee the whole thing. They're going to provide all the fuel all the way through to decommissioning of this plant. And oh, by the way, they're going to finance the first three or four. And all you have for me are threats. So right. who's controlling the fuel cycle at this point? We cannot afford as a country to lose our seat at the nuclear table. And that, and so 232 is not about protectionism for a couple of dink companies in the United States. It's about maintaining the fuel cycle in the United States, about maintaining our position at the nuclear table and maintaining our position as the primary gatekeeper, preventing nuclear proliferation around the globe. And so from that standpoint, I would say to you and your listeners, we are fighting a just and righteous cause and we're going to win. And you know why we're going to win? Because we're right. There's too much at stake here. We must win. Yes. And, and sadly, uh, the U.S. is a victim of their own stupidity, which has put us in this position. So it's really sad. I want to I want to move on uh, just for the sake of time. If the uranium spot price destruction is caused by Russian dumping of cheap subsidized production into the market, how long can they realistically continue doing this? And for how long do you think that this will, will go on? Well, look, this is something that you need. I, I, this is where you, your listeners would have to have a brief uh, history lesson. And I'll, I'll spend a minute or two giving it to them. The simple fact of the matter is, is right now the Russians under the suspension agreement, this was put in place in 1992. Remember, this was a different time politically, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And we were seeing scientist defect. We were seeing enriched material, highly enriched material go missing. We were seeing nuclear bombs go missing. So we put the Russian suspension agreement in place so that they would have an outlet, a place to sell that into the Western world. And it was the right thing to do. It was well-intentioned. And I think that it was something good that was put in place. Now, fast forward to 2019, and we're coming up to the Sunset Review. These guys, since 1992, the Russians, that is, under the Russian suspension agreement, have had under international treaty the right to provide up to 20% of our consumption here in the United States. And in the early going, it was a good thing. In later, in the last several years, it's turned into a weapon that they've used against us. But the reason it's become a weapon is because now you have to talk about something that nobody wants to talk about, and this is the whole Uranium One issue. You know, this goes back to the depredations of the Clinton Foundation, the Obama administration, when they approved the sale of those assets to the Russians. When the Russians bought Uranium One, it wasn't because they wanted to take control of 20% of U.S. assets. That was just a happy coincidence and, and outcome of it. What they right. wanted was control of seven or eight of the largest producers in Kazakhstan. And so right. what that provided them then was massive production that they could use for dumping outside of the confines and the, and the restraints of the Russian suspension agreement. So not only do they have the right to, to provide in our country 20% of our consumption, which, by the way, we don't even get 2% as domestic producers, but the Russians get 20% guaranteed to them under international treaty. But they have been circumventing the Russian suspension agreement for the last several years with their control of the very large production facilities in Kazakhstan, and they've been using that material to dump onto global markets, and they're doing it to undercut everybody else, put all of their competitors out of business so they can control the market and grab market share. It's been a brilliant, I mean, Vladimir Putin is the chess master, right? I mean, watching him play Obama for eight years was just an absolute embarrassment to anybody who understands international geopolitics. Uh, it was just an absolute disgrace, and it was an embarrassment. But the uh, but it was really the nail in the coffin, and you hate to because nobody wants to talk about it. It's it's it's, it's a political issue that 
it stinks to high heaven. It reeks of the highest levels of corruption in our country. But the Uranium One transaction that was allowed under the Obama administration is really what has brought us to where we are today. They have some of the largest resources in the world. They can continue massive production for many, many years into the future. So you ask me how long this can go on? It can go on for decades. And they will control the market. They will not only control the fuel cycle, but they will control the, the nuclear fuel. They will control the nuclear industry. And I say thank God for the, the small modular reactors and the micro reactors that we are leading the way in developing because this is going to lead to a resurgence in the United States. And ultimately, I believe that everyone in the world will come to the point where they're going to realize the impracticality of building very large conventional nuclear power plants and instead strategically placing small modular reactors that actually are quite productive themselves in terms of the megawatts that they can produce and the micro reactors, which can be deployed all around the globe, whether it's for military purposes, responding to crises or whatever the case might be. But this is something where the market is changing. Uh, the danger of using nuclear is changing as the um, the uh, the um, uh, meltdown resistant fuels are, are now coming into existence. The, the market is changing and it needs to change. But that is something that takes place over time. And while that's taking place, we cannot allow Vladimir Putin to fulfill his plans and his strategy of taking control of the fuel cycle and taking control of the nuclear industry globally, because that is exactly what his plan has been. And quite candidly, I am very proud of being the fly in his ointment. Right. No, and it's just it's like taking the Robert Kraft Super Bowl ring. <laughs> uh, so no, it's it's that's absolutely fascinating. I, I want to move on for again for sake of time. Uh, if or as U.S. uranium production ramps at some point, which it will, what support businesses and industries, picks and shovels, if you will, might see a little bit of that growth coming off of that? Is there any supply chain evolution here that any specialized services supporting uranium mining in the U.S. as opposed to other? extractive industries is there is there some some you might mention or can, can think of well certainly there's going to be a ramp up in manpower but keep in mind that the, the primary form of production both in the united states and elsewhere right now roughly 50 percent of all uranium that's produced is produced via institute and there's a reason for that it's lower cost it's more environmentally friendly and there's three primary components that go into institute production electricity manpower and chemicals and so, yes, there will be an increase in manpower, but most importantly there, we will, we, will, we will preserve the intellectual capital that we're so in danger of losing right now, and we will expand it, and that is critically important. But, you know, obviously, we, there's, a, there's a shortage of drill rigs, but, the, you know, that, the drilling industry is going to benefit because it is a very drilling-intensive industry. Uh, in addition to that, uh, more chemicals will be used. I don't think enough to make a difference in those industries to where there are companies I would point to that I would say would benefit directly. But right. the primary benefit of this is that we do not lose the fuel cycle in the United States. Look, the three components, there's four components to the fuel cycle, uranium production, conversion, enrichment, and fabrication. Already here in the United States, there's only two of us left that are producing. The, those are the co-petitioners. So, when the utilities go to look at, and they have a quota to fill, who are you going to go to? The guys that have never, they haven't even built out a plant yet, but purport to be a uranium producer, or the guys that have been on standby for seven years and don't even have the manpower 
and never produced much when even when they were in production. No, you're going to go to the two guys that are ready to ramp up. You're either going to be a ramp up story or you're going to be a build out story. We're a ramp up story, as our as is our co petitioner. So right. I think right. that really, I'm I really in, to answer your question, I I can't point to other industries that I think are going to benefit tremendously from this. The main beneficiary of this is going to be the preservation of the fuel cycle, the preservation of self reliance and 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 our own ability to. Um, to preserve the fuel cycle in the United States and, and be self-reliant and not dependent on other countries, particularly those that are hostile to the United States and to the West, and maintaining our seat at the table, uh, which is so critical to nuclear proliferation because there's already too many countries that have nuclear weapons. And if the, if this is ceded to the Russians and the Chinese, in 10 years, you can double that number. Jeff, what is the end strategy for UR Energy? Do you want to build out this into a long-term producer, which really is, seems to be the direction, or would you look for a sell-off, or are you open to both? Well, first of all, we, one of the things I'm proud of is that despite the fact that Fukushima occurred on March 11th of 2011, we completed our permitting, we built out, and we put contracts in place all after 2011. There was only one contract that was put in place two months before nine before. Uh, 311 happened. Okay. Uh, so we feel very proud of the fact that we've been able to achieve everything we ever said we would do. We have great life of mine at Lost Creek. We we think that we can expand life of mine at Shirley Basin. We have a third property teed up in Lost Soldier that has about 14 million pounds. And we have others that would be development properties for us. So we intend to be around for a long time. And it has always been our primary objective to be a provider to the United States utilities. We've never sold a pound overseas, even though we've had the ability to do that. Um, I have a, a very firm um, conviction that we will never sell a pound that I believe can be weaponized. And so we will not sell uh, pounds outside of the United States. We intend to be a provider to the nuclear uh, power plants here in the United States. We're the largest market in the world. That should be ample for us. But we intend to be a long-term player. We will continue to develop new projects and bring them online as we have the ability to, but it starts with contracts. We have to have the contracts to sustain ourselves, not just us, but other players in the industry. But the one advantage that I have is that I am the lowest cost producer in the United States, and that means I'm lower cost than even Cameco. But in addition to that, one of the things that nobody's looking at right now that's so critical is what's going to be the cost, the CapEx to ramp up. I believe that I can ramp up at a lower cost, a capex, about 15 million at Lost Creek, another 24, 25 million at um, Shirley Basin. So 40 million for me to get to, let's say, a benchmark of 2 million pounds a year. Let's call that the benchmark that everybody wants to try and get to in the United States. I think, I don't know of any company that can do it faster or at lower cost than I can. So that's my advantage in the marketplace. And that means that I can do it faster, lower cost, and with less dilution to my shareholders. So we are in a unique position, and we intend to be around for a long time. It was regrettable, and it is regrettable in my view, that we had to bring Section 232 and really bring this thing to a head. But we have put it in the national dialogue. Uh, I make no apologies uh, for the fact that uh, that it had to be done this way. If there was any other way, look, it, the, 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 everybody's running out of contracts. Do you think that if Cameco still had long-term, large-scale contracts, that they would have shut down MacArthur River, the single largest producer in the world, and lay off nearly a thousand people? They would not have done that. 
that these, this is exactly the consequence of allowing the Russians and the Cossacks to execute their strategy against the West. So we did what we had to do within an administration that we felt was favorable to our industry for the first time in many, many years. And so we took action and, and um, no apologies for that. I think that at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, business will be done. Uh, the, uh, the utilities will see this as a business matter. Look, they're risk averse. They're conservative. They hate uncertainty. Well, so do we. And the fact is, is that when, if this, however this re comes down, and I believe that the result will be quotas, I believe that they'll look at it and say, look, who are the known, com who are the known commodities? Who are the guys that we know can actually produce? Because they're going to want to satisfy their quota, call it a day, and put it behind them. Well, there's ourselves, there's our co-petitioner, and there's, and there's Cameco. Even though Cameco got rid of all their people and they're on standby right now, it'll take them a couple of years to ramp up. But they're a known commodity, and everyone knows that. So I think you've really got basically three main players that are even capable of delivering within a very short period of time. Everybody else is a build-out player, and that takes time, and it takes a lot of capital, and it, and it takes a lot of dilution. So we feel that we're in a unique position, uh, and we feel that we're going to be able to do it faster at lower cost and less dilution than any of our peers. Right, and I think the 232 is really – a early wake-up call for the inevitable. Now, I want to. I think I've got my answer, but is there a desire to look beyond the U.S. for other assets and projects at UR? For us at the present time, no. And the reason being is that, look, when this uranium renaissance began back in the early part of this century in 2004 and 2005, uh, you know, look, it was viewed that a project was a project was a project, whether it was in Newfoundland, Mongolia, or the wrong side of a border in Australia we soon found out that jurisdiction matters. And while we may not like the massive regulatory hurdles that we have to overcome here in the United States, the reality is, is that at least it's a, it's a solid market governed by the rule of law. And despite the fact that it took us seven years as a permitting and licensing story to get our first project fully permitted to build out, at least we knew we were going to get there. Uh, that's a lot more than you can say for most other jurisdictions around the world. If we saw something that we found particularly compelling in a place that was uranium and nuclear friendly, we'd take a look at it. We have the expertise to do that, but it's nothing that we're going looking for right now. There's plenty of targets in our own backyard, including expansion of our own facilities. Why now should potential investors be considering UR Energy? What would you say to the potential investors listening? Well, as for the points that I've already enumerated, and that is that You've got to start looking at this. I mean, look, I mean, no one's even started thinking about the minutiae of this. I mean, the difference between a ramp-up story and a build-out story and what that difference is between the two, what the CapEx is going to be to get into a reasonable level of production. Let's call it even a million pounds a year. How long is it going to take? Are you going to have to build out or are you just going to ramp up? Do you already have your operational staff in place? What is your cost to get there? What is going to be your dilution? And then on every count on, on, on every measure, we are the superior company. We are better positioned. We're better prepared. I can do it at lower cost in a shorter time period and with less dilution to my shareholders. And while I'm in the process, I've got cash on hand, I've got inventories on hand, and I've got revenue for the next two years. So 
if there's anybody out there doing it better than we are, I know every player in the space. I cannot for a moment think about who that might be. If you want to be invested in the single best company in the space, your energy is the company you need to be invested in. Jeff, and how can folks reach out to the company for more information? You know, that is on our website, and uh, you can always reach out to me personally. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, uh, I take shareholder calls. Um, sometimes if I'm traveling in particular, it might take me a day or two to get back to you. But um, my email is on our website, as is our direct phone number. Either leave me a phone message or uh, send me an email. It may take me a day or two, but I call back every call. Jeff, thanks for taking the extra time. It's been a pleasure. Take care and talk soon. Andrew, thank you so much for having me.